electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. The day after one of the darkest days in this country's recent history, stocks are rallying again. The Dow and S&P hitting new record highs. The Dow topping 31,000. We discuss and debate as we always do these markets with our investment committee. Joining me for the hour today are Josh Brown, Steve Weiss. Jenny Harrington is the CEO and portfolio manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management. We do begin, though, today with breaking news. Yet another major deal in the SPAC space involving one of its biggest players. Chamath Palihapitiya announcing here on Halftime his latest special acquisition company will merge with the popular fintech firm SoFi. You know that well. And take that company public. There's Chamath. He joins us now. Congrats. Welcome. Hey, Scott. How are you? I'm good. Happy New Year. I know you as well. And I know it's a big day uh, for you. Why SoFi? Um, Have you been targeting fintech for a while? How did this come together? Yeah, you know, a lot of the things that I do is try to look at back at some of the best investments we've made, like Amazon and Tesla, and try to find patterns. And in this, what I was trying to do was map those patterns into financial services, just because we're at a point in time where it's clear that the banking infrastructure really isn't meeting the needs of U.S. consumers. And so what I did was just kind of systematically try to figure out what was broken in banking, and then try to figure out which company was best representative of the solution that people wanted, which I can basically tell you is three things. People want low to no fees, they want fair and transparent lending, and they want a full suite of products so that you can basically have a one-stop shop. And SoFi basically was the top of the list when I, when I looked across all the companies on those dimensions. We've obviously been following SoFi for a long time. It's been a member of CNBC's Disruptor 50 list, so we're very familiar with it. We're familiar, obviously, with, with Anthony Noto. The idea of this disruptive force, Chamath, in banking post-financial crisis and what people are looking for, that's a big part of the success of SoFi uh, and certainly of, of your attraction to it. Yeah, in fact, you know, the, the way that I think about this is I call this sort of the anatomy of innovation, right? You look under the hood of the best companies and the best CEOs, they do the following things. The first thing is when you get a good product, you don't sit on your heels. You double down and you invest really aggressively to use technology to drive down the cost. And then what you do is you deliver those savings onto consumers. Then you launch many more products on top of the same platform. And the most important thing you have to do for people is to democratize access to a key resource. That's what Amazon has done. That's what SoFi is doing. Because the problem that banks have right now is after the great financial crisis, what they've done is they make money with hidden fees, with exorbitant fees. They have very restrictive lending practices. Ask anybody who's a middle-income person or a minority or a woman. It's incredibly hard to get access to the money you need 
to fulfill your dreams. And SoFi has fixed all these things, which is why I think it's such an incredible business. I mean, SoFi made it clear that it was entertaining the idea of going public through a SPAC. Uh, how did you convince Anthony Noto that you were the right sponsor to be the one to make it all come to fruition? So, you know, the, the thing that Anthony has done, which is incredible, is he's basically created, again, as I said, this one-stop shop that gets, you know, your money right, right? A whole suite of products. And the thing is, a lot of what I've done in the past and what my team has done is really help people operationally improve how they grow, how they market, how they can virally expand. And all of these dynamics, I think, came to play because when you look under the hood at SoFi, there's this incredible thing happening. You have these millions of customers, 1.8 million last year, 3 million members this year, but then they are paying for millions and millions of products. And so what we saw were these dynamics where there was this incredible upselling and cross-selling behavior. And what I talked to Anthony about was, you know, can I help? Can I try to do what I've you know, been able to do at Facebook, what I was able to do at Slack? You know, in fact, when Anthony and I first met 10 years ago, it was actually when he was at Twitter. And we talked about working together there to do the same things. And so that's how the relationship started. And that's how we decided to come together and, and do this transaction. I've always sort of wondered when you, know, when you have a SPAC, it's the, the quest is, is about the what, right? I mean, you, you have a, you know, basically a year to go find the what. What company are you going to try and merge with and take public? What's not discussed so often is the who, the man or woman behind yeah. the company, uh, who is the operator. What is it about Anthony that is attractive? And can you just speak in general to that idea of the importance of the person who's actually running these companies? Because, you know, not all SPACs are created equal. They're not a guaranteed success. You have to rely on the, the person who's founded this company. You're the investor. Look, I think you're seeing, um, even through the events of the last 24 hours, leadership and character really matter because you are faced with incredibly difficult decisions of policy, of morality, um, all kinds of things. Here's what I can tell you just personally about Anthony. Um, he has lived an incredibly hard life to get to where he has. And I have tremendous empathy for that because I've lived a similar path. And so I just have deep respect for the man that he is and the character that he has. But then, you know, practically speaking in his career, he is just completely money in the bank. I mean, the former CFO of the NFL, the former CFO of Twitter, the former COO of Twitter, an incredible banker, a great research analyst, and just a wonderful human being. So this is sort of a what you see is what you get kind of guy who really believes in you know, advancing financial services for, you know, middle America, um, for normal folks to be able to sort of get ahead. And I just think that that's a person you want to see win. And then as a result, the company that he's built is just really special. Yeah, we uh, we have Anthony with us as well. Uh, Anthony Noto uh, joining us now. It's good to see you, uh, Anthony. Congrats on the deal. Happy New Year to you. You should hire PR. Uh, Chamath as your PR guy, too, given what he just said about you. <laughs> Hi, Scott. Thank you. Happy New Year to you as well. And yes, Chamath, thank you for the kind words. That was very generous of you. Anthony, you, you could have done this a number of different ways. Um, everybody expected that at some point SoFi was going to go public. Why through a SPAC and why with Chamath? Well, first and foremost, why with Chamath? Um, when we took Chamath through our management presentation, we we're actually thinking about a private investment and we're considering potentially going public in the back half of next year. 
Um, but as I took Chamath and his team through our management presentation, we start with our mission and then we talk about our strategy and our points of difference and then, of course, um, what we call the financial services productivity loop. And I could see their heads nodding and the questions they asked us afterwards. And so first and foremost, we were just super aligned on the strategy that we were taking. We were also very much aligned to what the opportunity was in front of us. And then most importantly, what it was going to take to get there. And the how is really, really critical And having investors that understand the magnitude of the investment that we have to make in technology, the magnitude of the big bets that we need to take to capture that opportunity, and just be a very big, ambitious thinker in setting really high, lofty goals. We think we can impact the world in an incredible way, and that, was, that first and foremost was important. Second is, you know, he has a reputation and a relationship with institutional investors, and I thought the combination of the relationships I had, the combination of the relationships he had, we could really do a, a much better job educating people on the opportunity together, two being stronger than one, and we could go to market together, which is very unique um, among the different SPACs. And then third, they've done this a number of times. They are very experienced. They understand how to operationalize the whole process of doing a SPAC into a public company and had done it very successfully. And so, um, you know, that was also important. And then last, there are a lot of things we'll do together strategically based on what he's experienced in his professional career and the growth team that he has at Social Capital and that we can, lever that we can also benefit from at, at Social Finance. And uh, just before you ask the question, it's social capital and social finance, so it seems like it was, uh, <laughs> it was, it, it was going to happen at, at, some, at some point. Yeah. Um, why, a SPAC versus an, why a SPAC versus an IPO? I, I'd say a couple things. Doing a SPAC allows you to really educate investors at a depth that's not that, it's not that affordable or afforded in an IPO. So we can spend a lot of time between right now and when the vote actually happens um, to to de-SPAC and close the merger with investors, educating them on what SoFi is and what the opportunity is. And that's really critical to build that strong foundation of what we're focused on and what we're going to do over the next five to 10 years, because institutional investors clearly are going to have to deal with dislocations in the market. They're going to have to deal with the ups and downs of operating companies, and they more than understand the long-term view of what we're doing, the better we'll serve them and the better value uh, that we'll drive for shareholders over time. So education was number one. Uh, number two is deal certainty. You know, we're announcing today a substantial amount of capital raised already. There's more capital that will come onto our balance sheet when we close the merger. Um, but today we're sitting here with, you know, a very large pipe of about $1.225 billion plus a private investment from T. Rowe for another $307 million that we closed just at the front end of this, which drove some momentum for us as well. And so deal certainty really matters. You've seen people file an S1 for an IPO and then it doesn't get done. That's incredibly damaging to a brand. And a brand like ours, where people have to trust us and we need to be a household brand name, we can't take that risk of something happening in the world that's out of our control that damages the process of us going public. So, you know, the deal certainty here in terms of the capital raise is much higher. Obviously, nothing's 100% certain. There are still risks, but there's more deal certainty. And then the last thing is we can really provide a forward view of where we're investing and what businesses are, are in invest mode and what businesses are actually in profit mode. And we're really benefiting from three different businesses, some of which are growing really, really fast and profitable, some of which are growing faster but not profitable. And it's a combination of understanding those three business lines. So a SPAC allows us to do that, and that's why we made the decision. Now that my viewers have a chance to literally invest in you and, and, and your company, What's your sales pitches to them as to why they should consider SoFi in their basket of, of fintech stocks and the belief you have uh, in your own company's growth going forward? 
Yeah, what I'd say is, you know, we're going through the process that we'll have to go through to close the deal, and we need to file the um, SEC document, the S-4, for the proxy vote, and so I'll leave a lot of it to that document. Um, we do have a management presentation that's publicly available, but at the end of the day, if you think about the market opportunity in front of us, i.e. financial services move, moving from physically done to digitally done, and what player is providing a comprehensive set of solutions on one mobile device, to the best of my knowledge, only SoFi is providing on a digital device the ability to borrow, save, spend, invest, and protect. And we're doing that on our own technology platform, vertically integrated, just like the way Amazon is. And there's this market opportunity of 500 million accounts that are still tied to legacy FDIC banks. And those experiences are still physically based in branches and not as functional as our experience on our mobile phone. So we're a one-stop shop on your mobile phone for a comprehensive suite of products. We, we create faster experiences. We provide better selection. We provide better content and better convenience to really capture those that are looking for that experience online versus offline, just in the same way we saw this on Float for e-commerce and e-retailing um, from 1999 to today. And so that opportunity hasn't even started to move online yet in a big way, given there's 500 million accounts still tied to the incumbent banks. Uh, and we have an opportunity with this one-stop shop comprehensive solution to capture them uh, in a unique way. Yeah. Steve Weiss, do you have a question? Well, we're having a problem with Steve Weiss's mic. We'll figure that out. Josh Brown, I know, has one as well. Josh, hopefully we can hear you. Yeah. Hey, guys, congratulations on the deal. I'm a big fan of what you've built at SoFi so far. And I think having Chamath involved takes it up another level. I wanted to ask you about this idea of, uh, I guess, a, a form of arbitrage whereby it's true that the large traditional banks charge all these hidden fees and have all these costs associated with being a customer of theirs. But they, to some extent, have to because their shareholders expect it. Imagine if Jamie Dimon said, for the next two years, J.P. Morgan is going to forgo profitability. We're just going to reinvest in services and cut all our prices on everything by 90 percent. He'd have a revolt on his hands and the share price would collapse. Whereas fintech companies like this one and SPACs that are funding them, they have a shareholder base that's not so worried about profits right away and can wait it's almost reminiscent of, of Berkshire Hathaway and some of the advantages of capital raising that they had had. What do you guys think about that being an advantage right now and potentially for as far as the eye can see years, years uh, in the future? Yeah, it's, um, it's something that's really important to understand, which is that when, you know, when we partnered with Anthony, what we're really doing is enabling him to build, as you said, an extremely different business, even though it competes effectively with, you know, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, and J.P. Morgan and the like. Because underneath the hood, the great thing about SoFi is that this is a technology company that doesn't just have this great consumer brand that Anthony just walked you through. It actually also has an enterprise business. So meaning, you know, the great way that Amazon was able to build such an enormous company was because they had this duality. Right? They were able to invest in consumer businesses and then take all that technology and sell it to other companies. SoFi is the only other company we've seen doing this at scale. It's built what we call the AWS of fintech. So what we are enabling, exactly as you said, is the complete disruption of all this legacy infrastructure. You know, J.P. Morgan has to fight with one hand tied behind their back with technology that's 50, 60, and 70 years old. Instead, SoFi has built this great business for consumers, but it is also the platform that Chime is built on top of, that Robinhood is built on top of, that Dave.com is built on top of. And so 
you know, SoFi wins both ways. They win from consumer adoption, but they also win from enterprise adoption. And we've seen what happened when you brought those two things together in e-commerce. And so to your point, we're funding a technology company. It just so happens to be competing against folks that unfortunately have to fight with one hand tied behind their back. And the other thing I would just add to Chamath's comments that to answer your question is, when we architect our products, we're challenging our general managers and our product managers to differentiate on those four differentiators of fast selection, content, convenience. But we're also challenging them to drive superior unit economics per account or per loan. And we're leveraging a strategy where we want to build trust and reliability with a member in one product that's a best-in-class product that has great unit economics. So when they think about using their next product, they choose SoFi. And when they do, we increase our revenue per member quite meaningfully. We don't pay a second customer acquisition cost, which adds to the lifetime value of the customer. And that excess profits can be reinvested in better prices, better interest rates, better selection, better content, faster service, and we just drive the flywheel. We call that financial services productivity loops. So we're starting with an economic model on a per account or per um, loan basis that is superior. Our per, our per loan economics have, on average, generated about 40 to 50% variable profit margins or more um, over, the la- over the last two years. And that gives us a lot of excess profits to reinvest in these better services, just the way Amazon has and Walmart has low-cost operators. And it is a unique advantage that we don't have these high costs that then force you to charge fees, overdraft fees, and minimum balances and minimum spend. And so we can uniquely di- differentiate each product, and then they work better together to drive what we call as our flywheel is the financial services productivity loop. Steve Weiss, I think we fixed your audio. Yep, uh, here I am. First of all, uh, you know, I'd like to echo everything Jamal said about Anthony. We go back about 25 years from when we worked together at Solomon. I've known everything that Jamal has said to be true. Here's my question. I've had the benefit and the privilege of, of talking to you offline about potentially collaborating a few things. I've spoken to some of your people. Excellent. And what strikes me is that you can bring products to market quickly, but you don't do it without doing your due diligence, uh, do extensive due diligence. So I imagine being a public company, and now you have a public currency that you'll be able to attract even more high-quality people. And despite not being shy about your advertising budget before, of course, SoFi Stadium, that having that public company, that ticker out there, will bring more clients into the fold. So do you see it that same way? I do think being a public company is, I think Bill Gurley may have made this analogy of um, a college player deciding to apply for the draft. And we, we think being a public company will take our company to the next level. It allow us to recruit and retain talent more. It allow us to elevate our focus on driving shareholder value. The public scrutiny, I think, is a positive thing for companies. And it re- requires that we make right choices and we think about how we prioritize our resources. We can't do all things for everyone, and so we have to make the right bets and allocate the resources the right way and manage risk the right way. And now we'll, that we'll be in a public um, spotlight, sort of the importance of that, the significance of it, and the focus of the company on it really changes. I've done dozens and dozens of IPOs as a research analyst and as a banker, and companies that are prepared to go public, which I'm confident we are, take their performance to the next level. They have higher notoriety, there's, they're more high profile, um, but they're also in a world in which there's a measurement every day that shows them how they're doing over the long term. And so we welcome the opportunity to be a public company. Our employees have made this happen. They, they deserve the rewards of having some liquidity. We wouldn't be here today without all of the hard work of so many of our existing employees and 
and our previous employees. And so I'm just representing all those people that have had a huge impact on our members' lives and got us to this point. But we're all excited about taking this next step. And we spent 2020 preparing for this moment. So it's a, it's a big day for us. Be, before I let you go, um, Anthony, and, and I, I don't want to let you go without having you address the events that we all witnessed yesterday. Uh, you're a proud graduate of the United States Military Academy. A lot of CEOs are speaking out over the last 24 hours plus about the events that everybody witnessed yesterday. You've tweeted some things about it. I'd like to hear, though, from you directly. Yeah, so yesterday was a very, very uh, challenging day. Um, when you do deals like this, there's a ton of things going on in that last day. And so there's a fog. There's a fog over you. And I was on a Zoom conference call talking about allocations, talking about press releases, talking about final signatures and deal terms. And I looked up and I, I saw on my TV, which was on mute, like this rioting and, and unrest. And I immediately thought, boy, that looks like Berlin. Are, are they showing us something from, you know, World War One or World War... And I was confused because I'm... I'm focused on the Zoom, and I, then I'm like, well, maybe that is the Soviet Union. And then I realized it was the United States, and I couldn't believe it. It's just unacceptable. It's intolerable what happened yesterday. It challenges the very fabric and foundation of our democracy. And what's worse, it's incited by the most important, the m most privileged position in the United States, the seat of, our, seat of our president. And so it's absolutely intolerable. It's unacceptable. I believe in free speech, I believe in free demonstration, but it needs to be done with mutual respect. And it needs to be done within the letter of the law and the rule of law. And it's up to our public officials to reinforce those principles, not challenging them and break them down. So I was appalled by what I saw and disturbed by it. We sent a message to our company and we as leaders are responsible to run after these problems. One of our core values at SoFi is we run after problems. This is a problem all of us face, and each one of us has to have that mentality that it's our responsibility to make a difference. And it's not someone else's problem, it's each of our problems. And I think back to what happened in the greatest atrocities in, in the world over the last 100 years, and social media platforms are actually making us more aware of those things today. And when I saw the video of the President of the United States saying what he was saying, I said to myself, thank God we have Twitter. Thank God we have Facebook. Thank God we have Snapchat and we have YouTube. Otherwise, we'd be in the dark and would allow this type of behavior to perpetuate itself. And those leaders of those companies are making the best decisions they can. And so are others. And so I applaud them for taking action and running after problems and trying to solve the solution instead of accepting it and letting it become the norm. Well, you, so that's, that's how I think about it. And, sorry, go ahead. No, I want you to finish your thought. Forgive me. No, that's okay. I, that's how I think about it. I think it, it's important that we all as leaders maintain the foundation of what has made our country great. And we take responsibility for doing that and don't wait for someone else to take the action. We have to run after problems and make the difference. Look, you, you went there with, with social media. You, you used to be a, a high-ranking executive at, at Twitter, which has shut the president out now for, for 12 hours. Um, you don't think Twitter and social media has been responsible in any way for what we witnessed yesterday? I think we're all responsible. We had a free election. We elected the administration. We made that choice. We're now suffering the consequences. So now we have to take another action and take responsibility for our actions. And we elected a new president, President-elect Biden, and we should support him. It's time for the administration to hand over the flag. The change of command needs to happen seamlessly, and it's our responsibility for making it happen. We can't blame one person, one organization, or one leader. We the people are responsible for what happened, and we the people are responsible for fixing it.
You think Twitter made the right decision? I think Twitter is faced with really tough decisions, and I don't know all the details to weigh in on whether or not this was the right decision. What I will say is this. We are better as a country when we can see a leader that is trying to break the foundation of our democracy and to be aware of that and see it firsthand so it doesn't go unnoticed, so that we can react and identify the problem. But there becomes a point when the balance flips over, where the balance of giving the world the visibility of that, the transparency of that, comes at the risk of the people. And I think we saw that yesterday. And so I'm with Jack. I I appreciate uh, you coming on today. Congratulations on the deal. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. And Chamath, to Social Capital, we can't thank you enough for all the support and the banking and legal teams that have worked around the clock for months. Uh, Thank you. That's Anthony Noto. Um, You know, Chamath, I'd like to to continue on this this line of, of conversation that we're on now. You were an early Facebook employee. You've been critical of that company. What are your thoughts on what Twitter has announced? Facebook now says that they're going to ban President Trump throughout the remainder of his term, which is a couple of weeks. How are you thinking about this today? It's a uh, I'm, I'm a really of mixed emotions. Um, let me just tell you what I feel as an ex-employee. Um, what I'm thinking to myself is that if I was working at Facebook today, I would be confused. And largely because I would wonder what changed from six months ago, one year ago, 24 months ago, and today. The disinformation was the same. The amount of sort of vitriol that flowed through some of the groups was the same. Um, Their ability to organize was the same. Storm the Capitol existed before they actually stormed the Capitol. Um, And so... Unfortunately, the skeptical part of me says we optimized for short-term profitability at the sake of our democracy, and what we left in tatters was any sense that there was any sort of moral or ethical imperative that would govern decision-making at that company. Um, And so that saddens me, saddens me for the people that work there. Um, As a business person, I think we're also slightly to blame because we've sort of, you know, uh, said that that's okay because we've been enamored with the short-term profitability of Facebook. So I think in a nutshell, I think Anthony is right that we are collectively a part of this problem. I don't think it's theirs of their own making. You know, if the feedback loop to Facebook was fix this problem, otherwise we will sell your stock, they would have fixed it a long time ago. Instead, it was you're rich, get richer, we'll support you. And that's, this is what happened, Scott. Roger McNamee, uh, who I, I know that you know, said earlier on the network, he called what Facebook's done, and he's been a a, a notable critic, to say the least. Uh, He called it an act of desperation, uh, echoing your words that the the kind of things that uh, we've seen on Facebook have gone on for too long. He said Chris Saka, who was an early Twitter investor, has been in the Shark Tank as well, who I know you know Chris too. Um, He was more explicit in his criticism of both uh, Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg. You've got blood on your hands, Jack and Zuck. For four years, you've rationalized this terror. Inciting violent treason is not a free speech exercise. If you work at those companies, it's on you too. shut it down. Scott, 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 I think that we have to make a very clear distinction here. I think Twitter and Facebook are two very different products. I think the thing with Twitter is I actually think they're less to blame. And the reason is because the product is designed 
for everybody to be able to follow everybody else. So there is an incredible free flow of information. It does create a different problem, which is how do you construct a healthy social media diet? But that's what the problem is on Twitter. The problem on Facebook is different, which is it, it amplifies echo chambers on purpose and by design. And so if you're somebody who, for whatever reason, feels disenfranchised, you can find a corner of the Internet where you can amplify your worst fears. And unfortunately, 90% of that activity now happens inside of Facebook. The reality is that I think we've all realized after today that Section 230 is a fig leaf, that there is no way that these companies can hide behind it, that Facebook is a publisher, that they should be held to the same account as any television station or any newspaper, and that's okay. And they should just figure out how to adapt the product and move on. The thing about today, which I think is just unfortunate, is backpedaling is just kind of spineless. Right? For example, Kelly Loeffler can't go into the floor of the Senate and all of a sudden change her mind because there was rioting and four deaths. That's what it took. But everything else, it didn't change the actual perspective of whether there was voter fraud or not. And so all these fig leaves, people see through them. And people know them to be fake. And so we just have to have a real come to Jesus in this country about what's really important. Just to put a button on it before we take a quick break, you think Section 230 should be repealed? I think Section 230 needs to change, and I think that these social media companies need to be dealt with as publishers. And I think at the front of the line is Facebook because they are algorithmically deciding. There are people inside of that company that are building these things that are amplifying the lobotomization, the intellectual cornering of people so that they cannot learn what's really happening so that their worst fears and their worst concerns are amplified. And we need to do a better job of understanding that that diet is unhealthy, that now that you sell cigarettes that cause cancer, there needs to be labels, they need to be put behind the counter, they need to be far away from a children's reach. These things need to happen, and the equivalent version of that that drives this decision-making online is Section 230. It has to change. All right. We'll take a quick break. We do have much more ahead with Chamath Hapatia. Up next, major averages, as we said at the top, hitting new record highs today. What about valuations? Are they getting too stretched? We'll get Chamath's view along with the investment committee. We'll do that next. Dow right now, good for about 200, above 31,000. S&P 500, one and a third percent. New record high there, too. We're back after this. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your news update this hour. Lots of developments coming out of Washington. The incoming Senate Majority Leader, Democrat Chuck Schumer, says in a statement today that President Trump should immediately be removed from office for inciting what Schumer calls an insurrection against the United States. Schumer says the fastest way would be for Vice President Pence to immediately invoke the 25th Amendment. But if Pence and the cabinet do not take action, Schumer thinks Congress should reconvene to again impeach the president. In last hour's update, we told you that acting DHS chief Chad Wolf called on President Trump to denounce yesterday's violence. Today, the White House announced it is withdrawing his nomination to be the permanent DHS secretary, but says it has nothing to do with what Wolf said. 
Washington police have released photos of many people that they want to identify as persons of interest in their investigation of the Capitol riot. They have already made 68 arrests. We are following the developments in Washington for you. I'll be back in an hour. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Sue, we appreciate that very much. Thank you. Let's get to Dom Chu now. He has a market flash for us. Hi, Dom. On American Express, Scott, we see those shares down about 3.5% right now. They were down near 5% at the lows of the session. And this was on the heels of Wall Street Journal and Dow Jones headlines saying that uh, uh, federal regulators are probing some of these sales practices at American Express with regard to their sales of business cards for things like small business owners and, and, and the like. That particular headline and bit of news has now sent those shares to the downside. That is the reason why we're doing that, Scott. We are going to reach out to Amex for a comment here. But that's the news right now. Scott, I'll send things back over to you. I appreciate that, Dom Chu. Thank you for that. To the markets, Dow and S&P, as I said earlier, hitting new highs yet again today. Jenny, you know, yesterday market was up. And I, and I have to say, you know, there, there was something a little jarring, to say the least, about looking at the events in, in the, the nation's capital, while at the same time seeing that the Dow uh, had remained positive by three, 400 points. And here's a follow through today. We can see you fine. I don't know where your framing is, but there you are. Okay. <laughs> your view of, of well, sort of why we are where we are. So I got an email from one of my clients yesterday, and it said something like, gee, I guess the market loves chaos. And I wrote back, no, the market doesn't love chaos. The market hates chaos. We all know that. What we got yesterday was clarity. And we need to not, this is my favorite Bill Gates quote. He says, headlines in a way are what mislead you because bad news are headlines and gradual progress is not. And that's what happened yesterday. The headlines misled us. I don't mean to downplay how terrible yesterday was, right? But that was negative and it was the headline. And the gradual progress that we've made over the past year is unbelievable. We've done so much. We've done something that's never been done in the history of humankind before. We brought a vaccine to market within 12 months of the first symptoms of a virus. That's amazing. We had US presidential elections during that during this pandemic. We are actually en route to a smooth transfer of, of power on Inauguration Day. And yesterday we had clarity. It might not be what people want, not what everyone wants. Some people did. Some people didn't want the results that we found out yesterday. But the bottom line is the market doesn't care that much about whether it's a blue wave, a red wave. They care about clarity. And that's what we got yesterday. And that's what's important. One last note on that. Sure. It's easy to make the argument like, oh, you know, but, it's an, uh, but a blue wave is bad for business, blah, 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 regulation taxes. The reality is is that going back to 1951, whenever there's a democratic sweep, the average return of the market during those all democratic administrations is about 13%. So there's not a lot of history backing up any really negative case scenario right now. I think we look to the future, we look out a year, we see that things are getting better. We've made a ton of progress in the last year. And yesterday we got clarity. That's why the market was up. You, you know, Chamath, that speaks so well to a tweet that you had of, of two days ago, which says the following. And we'll put it up on the screen. Choose your own adventure. Dems win Georgia. Senate passes 2K uh, stimulus. Uh, assets keep inf inflating. Or Republicans win Georgia. Fed continues to pump money into stock and bond markets. Assets keep inflating. The point being, assets are going to be inflating in the near future at the bare minimum, regardless of what happens. Right. I saw some uh, incredible data points recently in the last few days, which showed that 
personal consumer credit card debt had fallen off a cliff, which kind of makes sense, right? Because you were in the middle of a pandemic and you weren't going out as normal. On top of that, I saw data that showed that the amount of savings that individuals had had gone up, and then the amount of money in money markets were at all-time highs. And so when you put those things together, it is rocket fuel for assets. And so whether those are housing markets or whether those are capital purchases like cars or vacations or stocks, in this case, if we're still under a lockdown, these things are just going to go to the moon for a while. And so you just have to be long. And, you know, everybody who's trying to sort of like understand why you shouldn't be long, I think is going to regret it for at least the next 18 to 24 months. Josh, is it that simple? It's been that simple for a long time. We've we've had a situation uh, where really people are faced with this choice of earning nothing on their savings, um, but not potentially losing money in a correction. Okay, that's great. Or being invested, understanding that they're owning stocks at elevated multiples relative to history, but saying, so what? I have no choice. I'm not using this money for 30 or 40 years. I cannot earn zero on it, and I can live with the bear markets that occur. And to me, that has not been a hard choice. I've been on the show for 10 years telling people to stay invested. So I'm with Chamath. Uh, I don't think it's paid off to be the smartest person in the room who has the most wildly contrarian point of view and is shorting stocks in the second best bull market of all time. And if that's been the adventure that you've chosen, uh, sorry. And it will change at some point, and maybe the thing that will change it will be different than all of the things that we thought would have changed it over all this time. Because every year there's a new thing that we're worried about. So, I, I mean, that's, that's where I have been. The only other thing I would add to this conversation that I think is worth adding is you're now in a situation where you have a lot of areas of the market that have not performed in the last five years starting to look really good, really attractive. Industrial stocks, material stocks, very important. If we're having another global, globally synchronized recovery in international markets, which appears to be the case, and international economies, more importantly, um, these are stocks that are still selling at depressed multiples where there's a lot of money that can be made. You don't have to buy a cloud computing company at 90 times sales. Like That's not the only option on the table. So I think people should be invested. I think they should own equities all over the world. I think they should be diversified. And I think they should uh, uh, read less on social media and read more books and relax. You know, Chamath, you mentioned um, rocket fuel. And I'm going <laughs> to – it's a loaded question. But nonetheless – Maybe the the epitome of, of all of this is Tesla, which is up 700 plus percent over the last year. Um, I think you're still a shareholder, right? Have you sold any shares? So what do you make of that in and of itself? 700 percent in a year? Elon Musk is now the richest person in the world as of today, passes Jeff Bezos. Yeah, it's really, it's really incredible, actually. I mean, he's somebody I've known for a really long time. I've uh, looked up to him for a long time. And here's what I would say, that he built a great car company, and somewhere along the way, you know, about five or six years ago, what I thought he was building was an energy company, and that eventually people would realize that climate change actually mattered. And it's taken five or six years for everybody to realize the same thing, and he's being rewarded. You know, the, the world's richest person should be somebody that's, that's fixing and fighting climate change. Um, I think the reality is that Tesla is a distributed energy business, 
right? They are figuring out how to harness energy, how to store it, and then how to use it in a way to, to allow humans to be productive. Cars are a manifestation, but you know, solar panels are as well, power walls are as well. And I'm telling you right now, Scott, the big disruption that's coming is to power utilities. There are trillions of dollars of bonds, of capex, of value sitting inside the energy generation infrastructure of the world that is going to go upside down. And when that goes pear-shaped, Tesla will double and triple again. And I think, you know, I tweeted this a, a while ago that I thought the world's first trillionaire would be a person fighting climate change. It very well could be Elon, but if it's not him, it'll be somebody like him. But it'll be because of this. Delivering clean energy, allowing the world to be sustainable is an incredibly um, important thing that will be rewarded by markets and individuals. And you're, you're just going to ride, I mean, you said two or three times higher than where it is now. You're just going to ride yeah, I that, mean, listen, that like, wave? Scott, I don't understand why people are so focused on selling things that work. Let's just, you know, uh, I'll make up a number. Let's just say I owned a billion dollars of Tesla stock. If I sold it, now I have a billion dollar problem. What do I do with that money? What about if it was 100 million? What about if it was just 10,000? 10 billion, it doesn't matter what the number is. The point is that when things are working, you're paid to stay with people that know what they're doing. And this is a guy who has consistently been one of the most important entrepreneurs in the world. And so why bet against him? It's the same thing with Bezos. Why bet against him? And there are a handful of other people. Anthony Noto, who we just talked to today, is yet another person. You get behind these people who have incredibly strong character, who know what they're doing, who aren't going to bend to short-term profits, and who are just going to drive the train for 10 or 20 years and make the world a better place. Get behind them. You know, the best way to summarize this, by the way, is a, a friend of ours who, you, who we mentioned earlier, Bill Gurley, has this great phrase. When the music's on, you got to dance. And so these guys are dancing. They are in rhythm. They're in flow. Let them do their thing. Get behind them. Don't sell a share. Just let them create value. I, I should note for you that somebody else... Uh, by the name of Chuck Prince, made a similar statement pre-financial crisis. And, and not that long after that, I don't think the world nearly ended. No, but, but Scott, so be careful what sorry, you say. I'm sorry, but Scott, I, I understand that. <laughs> no, but I understand that. But let's just make a clear distinction. Building products, cars, energy systems, batteries, retail infrastructure, robots, you know, transforming financial services to be fair for everybody... That's not trading derivatives and playing gotcha. And when Chuck Prince made that statement, he made that statement hiding the ball, right? That was not real value. Those people were just shuffling shells around, you know, taking money from average normal people. That's exactly why Occupy Wall Street happened. This time it is different, and it is different because people are making tangible things you can touch and feel. I, I use you know, Tesla in part to talk to you specifically about it, but also as a vehicle, if you will, pardon the pun, to address the idea of, of valuations and sort of where we are in the investing landscape. Let's bring in another uh, well-known investor, uh, uh, another gentleman you know, Altimeter Capital's Brad Gerstner. He's one of the investors, by the way, in the pipe of Chamath's uh, SoFi deal. Brad, welcome. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. Why, why the attraction quickly to to SoFi and, and Chamath before we move? Well, if you'll indulge me, you know, first, I've known Anthony and Chamath for a long time. We've been friends 
And their thoughtful words about yesterday just need to be echoed. You know, you've been out front on this. Yesterday was an incredible failure of leadership. But I do want to say, I thought I think it was a success of the system. I mean, this country has endured a couple plagues this year, one of leadership uh, and one in COVID, and we're emerging stronger. And so uh, I appreciate, you know, their comments, not only on the events of yesterday, but how capitalism can be a force for good in innovation, whether it's climate change or otherwise. And so when I met with Anthony about, uh, you know, the opportunity to participate in bringing uh, SoFi public, you know, Altimeter was was happy to participate. You know, we, we agree with the sentiments on the future of banking. Um, you know, they give you the ability to borrow and save and spend on your mobile device. Um, and the, frankly, the, the incumbents, which manage almost 500 million accounts in this country, uh, aren't innovating fast enough. And so they're being disrupted by companies like SoFi. And as you know, Altimeter is an investment platform and our public fund uh, invests all the time in opportunities like SoFi. So we're happy to participate. You, you have your second SPAC starts trading today, um, by the way, with a majority female board. Uh, so good for you on that. Good for you on that. Um, just the general environment of where we are. I, I, again, I, I use Tesla as an example of, you know, I don't know, maybe some are going to take issue with the word exuberance um, within the market. But how do you answer that question in the here and now? Well, I think Josh did a you know, good job and Chamath as well. Multiples expand and contract, and we're in an expansion phase right now. And the reason we're in an expansion phase, I was on your show on March 26. The Fed went all in. And they stomped on the gas. They said, we're taking rates to zero. And they were inducing people to make bets in the equity markets because they want to see inflation. And that's where we are in the market cycle. But let's be clear. The 10-year is back over 1%. Multiples will contract at some point this year or next. And I think it's important for retail investors to understand that they don't want to be you know, the tail on the dog when those things occur. Plan for it. right? Size your positions accordingly. For us at Altimeter, we're making decade-long bets. And so we understand that sometimes we're going to have less on or more on. Depending upon those things, I think that multiples in many high-growth stocks, both Internet and software, have already contracted by 15 or 20 percent. And so, you know, but overly focusing on, you know, uh, and, and trying to play the game of guessing where those multiples are going to shake out tomorrow, as Chamas said with Tesla, I think misses the longer-term opportunity. Find the companies that are changing the world, stay invested, and invest responsible amounts of money so that if there is a drawdown, you can double down when the stock goes lower. At Chamath, you know, so we, we're talking to Brad. He's got a couple of SPACs. You are known literally as the king of the SPAC. Uh, we talk all the time on this network about who has one. Um, it seems everybody does the, these days. Is, is there a point of saturation for this vehicle, a peak SPAC, so to speak, or, or not at all? How, how do you address that? No, I think that there are, I mean, literally tens of thousands of private companies that should be public. You know, we, we have a real issue at hand, which is that um, there is a massive inequality gap in the United States. There's trillions of dollars sitting inside of 401ks. They need to be allocated into things that can be fast growing so that normal, ordinary Americans can generate savings for their future retirement, for their homes, for their ability to pay for college. How do you do that? You're not going to do that by owning American Express. Those companies are dormant legacy businesses. That game is over. 
You need companies like SoFi. You need companies like Open Door, like Clover, and others. And the way that you do it is you have to have a simple on ramp to the public markets. A SPAC represents that. And what it does in creating that on ramp is also give retail folks a chance to participate, to do their diligence, to think about these companies, to get access to an enormous amount of information. So I don't think it's peak SPAC. I think that there are really going to be IPOs, right, initial public offerings, and now IPMs, initial public mergers. And it's just going to be the two ways that things are done. And there will be communities of retail investors that help really figure out how to make money from these things on behalf of other people. So I'm a really big fan of them. I wish Brad the best of luck. Um, you know, we're, we're going to continue to do it for a long time. Um, and I just think it's better for everybody. It's democratizing access to returns. And normal folks should not be locked out. And IPOs have historically done that. And IPMs, it- mergers via SPACs, do not. Hey, Scott, let, let, let me just say uh, one step further. Everybody in this country should be able to participate in the future of America. I would love to see the Biden administration take the equivalent of a SoFi account or a Robinhood account. And rather than focusing on Social Security at the end of people's lives, how about we give a $2,000 stipend at birth, right, that people can't withdraw, that compounds on the future of America in an account that they can see their savings grow, they can see a snowball grow. Right. To me, there's an opportunity. New Zealand, Australia already do it. I would love to see a national uh, savings account in this country where everybody gets to participate in the value creation. Yeah, Um, that's such a great idea. Oh, my gosh, that is such a great idea. We should absolutely do that. Look at the amount of money we waste as a country on all kinds of random nonsense. We let politicians run into the Capitol hang around for two, four, six years, and then just take from the till. How can we not do that for all of the children that are being born every day? That just makes so much obvious sense. That's a fabulous idea. Brad, I'm, I'm going to let you go. But, but first, speaking of going public, you're leaving the Roblox um, offering. The direct listing is, is, is what it's going to be. Near $500 million in revenue, near $30 billion valuation. So how do we think about that? Well, Scott, I will tell you that Roblox is one of the most iconic businesses we've encountered in years. Um, You know, once thought of as just a game, uh, you know, what Dave and team have built there is a global community that truly is creating, right? The developers creating the games, the players playing the games, communicating on these platforms, right? They're not, these kids are no longer communicating on Facebook. They're They're communicating by way of Roblox. I mean, the social connection and fabric Right. And creativity that it's fostered in the middle of COVID is extraordinary. They're commerce platforms. They're sharing platforms. And so we couldn't be more thrilled. I mean, you really, as you and I have talked about many times, if you take a three to a five year view on Roblox, the opportunity, it is in it is an absolutely dominant global business. Um, We're absolutely we're thrilled to be a part of it. Right. It's just another example of how. You know, Dave and his team, they're value driven. They're leveling the playing field. They're going to let retail investors, right, parents of kids who play the game, participate in, in the direct list. They're going to let employees be on a level playing field with everybody else, you know, without these crazy lockups. And so we couldn't be more thrilled, um, you know, to participate with Roblox. 
Uh, as we look at the next five to 10 years, we think this is going to be one of the more iconic businesses that we see in technology. Fun, uh, fun having you hang out with us uh, for a few, Brad. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Best to you all. Thanks for having me. All right, likewise, that's Brad Gerstner. I should also note uh, IPOE. It is uh, back open after being halted, uh, Chamath, and it is up. Uh, we'll call it 50 percent. There it is, right at 50 percent uh, on the nose, $18 and uh, just about 20 cents uh, for the latest uh, SPAC that uh, Chamath has taken public today. Again, SoFi. We're back after this. We'll talk some Bitcoin with Chamath. Chamath, we'll get the investment committee's take, too, uh, in the moments that we have left. Back after this. All right, Chamath, we don't have that much time left. Let's talk rocket ships. First, Bitcoin. That falls into that category because that's what that is. 39,000. Uh, where's it going? I mean, can you play the clip in 2012 and 13 when it was at 200 and everybody was laughing at me on CNBC every time I would talk about Bitcoin? Um, where is it going? It's probably going to 100, then 150, then 200,000. In what period? I don't know. Five years, 10 years? But it's going there. And the reason is because every time you see all of this stuff happening, it just reminds you that, wow, our leaders are not as trustworthy and reliable as they used to be. And so just in case, we really do need to have some kind of you know, insurance we can keep under our pillow that gives us some access to an uncorrelated hedge. And it's going to eventually transition to something much more important. But for right now, you're just getting all these data points that prove this thing. It's just the fabric of society is frayed. And until we figure out how to make it better, it's time to just have a little uh, schmuck insurance on the side. And everybody's running in. It's just an incredible thing. I could never have imagined it. <laughs> Good to be a schmuck, I guess, if you got, if you got in early and it goes to where you think it's going to go. Uh, the other rocket I want to talk to you about, uh, and I know people are interested in this, Virgin Galactic. Uh, the company, uh, maybe it was your first SPAC deal. I think it was. You sold a, a fair amount of yeah. that, 38% or so, 40% around there. Why? No, it was less than that. I sold a portion, 3.8 million shares of just the pipe. So it's much less than that as a percentage of my overall holdings. And it was literally just to make sure that I had the right liquidity to do all the things that I planned to do in 2021. But I really believe in that business. Um, it's an incredible team. It's an incredible product. Uh, I think the way that they're thinking about it, our CEO, Michael Colglazer, is just so impressive. Um, one of the top executives from Disney that we were able to lure over. The team he's building is amazing. I'm, I'm really, really excited about that I, I business, and I'm just really proud to be around him. I, I ask you because some people took that, that sale as maybe a, a, a lack of belief in, in where things were ultimately going to go. I'm sure you understand that. Yeah, I mean, look, at the, at the end of the day, you know, if, I, if and when, I think it's probably more when than if, I have 10 times the capital that I do now, I'll be able to manage my liquidity in a different way. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm trying to move a lot of balls forward. I'm making multiple billions of dollars of investments this year into climate change. I'm going to try something really disruptive in student loans. Um, and all of that takes money. And so, you know, I just have to be able to manage um, everything in my infrastructure to mm -hmm. make sure that I can do all of these things and... That's what it was. You, you tell us about your next big thing when you're ready. It's good having you as always. You be well. Happy New Year. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Scott. Happy New Year. All right. Thank you. Chamath, Chamath Palihapitiya joining us there. Final trades quickly. Jenny? National retail property. Five and a half percent yield should do well in the coming environment. TRB? 
Uber about to make a new 52-week and all-time high. Yeah, you've been big optimistic on that. Steve Weiss. <laughs> Jumia, Bailey Gifford, one of the large shareholders of Tesla, now has a 10% interest in the company. Man, another big day uh, for JMIA, up better than 12%. It's a big day, again, uh, for stocks, by the way. The Dow and the S&P once again hitting new record highs. Dow right now is good for 250 points. Thanks so much for watching. It does it for us. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.